welcome to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, this is Trevor Upham, the Cardiothoracic Surgery Fellow here at the University of California, San Diego. I'm here with Dr. Michael Madani, Professor-in-Chief of Cardiovascular and Thoracic Surgery here at UCSD, as well as Director of the Sulpizio Cardiovascular Center Surgery and Director of the Pulmonary Thromboendarterectomy Program here. Today we will be speaking about our experience on the evaluation of patients with chrono- chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, or CTEF, including preoperative workup, Interoperative Strategies, and Postoperative Management. Dr. Madani, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Trevor. It's an it's absolute pleasure uh, to be here and to uh, discuss this disease and the surgical treatment for it. And Dr. Madani, you believe this to be a relatively underdiagnosed disease here in America, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. The, um, uh, we, we don't really have a... Um, an accurate estimate of what the incidence and prevalence is. But um, if you think about uh, roughly uh, one out of a thousand patients who have PEs um, and approximately, depending on what study you look at, but probably somewhere around three to four uh, percent of patients who have acute PEs ending up with chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension, we feel that the incidence of this disease in the U.S. will be in the thousands, certainly probably in the range of 10, 12,000 a year, if not more. And that's only patients who actually have history of uh, acute pulmonary embolism, uh, not to mention a lot of patients who don't have history of the disease or have other causes, let's say, you know, indwelling catheters or pacemaker leads, and they have chronic small um, embolic disease that's not really diagnosed as, as a, you know, large acute pulmonary embolism. All, all right. Well, let's uh, dive into a, a case scenario. Uh, we'll have a, a 32-year-old gentleman who is otherwise healthy who noticed increasing shortness of breath. He had a history of lower extremity orthopedic surgery and was found to have extensive PEs on a CT scan. He also was found to have bilateral popliteal clots on duplex ultrasonography. On workup, he was also found to have antiphospholipid syndrome. He was placed on Xarelto, and at an outside hospital, he underwent catheter-directed TPA without any improvement of his symptoms. His right heart catheterization showed a mean pulmonary artery pressure of 63 with a measured pressure of 96 over 44 and a PVR of 12 wood units. He was also placed on Ryosiguat. He was then referred to UCSD for further evaluation treatment. Dr. Madani, thank you again for speaking with us. How would you proceed to work him up, particularly focusing on uh, additional imaging you'd like to receive? Well, this uh, patient uh, presents with what we would consider a classic history. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of patients actually do not have... uh, a classic history such as what you have presented. So before we go into what workup um, uh, you know, we would perform, I want to point out that roughly about 50% of our patients actually do not have a history of uh, DVT or PE. And a lot of times when they are diagnosed with 
pulmonary embolism. Actually, it's chronic pulmonary embolism that been diagnosed, and something set them off, and they then they get diagnosed with chronic disease. So one thing that should really tip you off um, is the pulmonary pressures that you just mentioned, and having a mean PA pressure of 63 with a systolic of uh, systolic PA pressure in the 90s. Uh, that should really tip you off right away that this is a chronic disease in this patient, that this is not um, something acute because your right ventricle cannot sustain uh, pressures that high, and it will take a lot of remodeling for it to be able to generate pressures that high. So um, that's a tip-off right away if you have somebody with uh, pulmonary embolism uh, and they have uh, high pressures like that and they're you know surviving it. Uh, that there may be a component of chronic disease involved as well. The other thing uh, that I just want to very briefly uh, point out is a medical therapy that the patient was on, and that's uh, Rio Ciguat. And the Rio Ciguat um, is only approved for patients who actually have been evaluated and not surgical candidates. Unfortunately, we do see uh, a lot of patients on this medication, but it's actually only approved when the patient has been turned on by surgery because it's not really effective when you have large obstructions. Now, in order to figure out if this patient is a surgical candidate, um, we have to really uh, look at two different things. And one is the degree of clot that the patient has and also the other conditions that patients usually have, the comorbidities. So I want to clarify two terms that are used uh, uh, when it comes to this disease. And, and that's the operability as well as surgical candidacy. When we look at a patient and we see large degree of clots that are easily retrievable through pulmonary that patient is a surgical, that patient is operable meaning that you could operate and remove the clot successfully. But the patient may have a lot of other comorbidities, including severe right heart failure, severe renal dysfunction, obesity, coronary disease, that may not make him a surgical candidate. So I want to emphasize for, uh, for our you know, uh, residents and, and fellows or whoever is listening, that just because there are clots and there are operable doesn't necessarily mean that the patient is a, is a surgical candidate. So there, there are two different things that we need to um, keep in mind. So when you ask me how do you determine if the patient is a surgical candidate, uh, the first thing is for us to figure out if the patient is operable. And um, you determine that by a variety of tests. The first thing is actually uh, an old-fashioned VQ scan. Because a lot of times, uh, the imaging studies that we get, the CTs and uh, coronary, I mean, the pulmonary angiograms, could potentially be somewhat misleading. So the first thing that we do is a VQ scan. If the VQ scan is relatively normal, and doesn't show large defects, you actually have ruled out the disease. It's very easy to confuse this disease with somebody who has pulmonary hypertension for other reasons. Let's say they have some underlying you know, pulmonary vascular disease, or they have COPD, or they have uh, primary pulmonary hypertension, and they have formed 
Now, as a result of their chronic disease, they have formed thrombus that sits in the vessels. And you look at the CT scan, and you see a lot of thrombus, proximal thrombus. You see pulmonary hypertension, and you say, wow, this patient has CTEF. But in reality, the patient doesn't have CTEF. And if you went in and removed the clots, actually, you have done a significant disservice, and that patient is not going to leave the operating room because you haven't addressed the underlying cause, which may be something different. So the VQ scan tells you if there are perfusion defects. And if you have perfusion defects, then you're going down the right path in diagnosing the disease. If the VQ scan is relatively normal, doesn't show you significant defects, you can be almost 100% certain that the patient does not have CTEF. No matter how much clot you see on the injury, on the uh, CT um, uh, CT scan, so VQ scan is a very important test. It's almost, unfortunately, a forgotten test because a lot of places uh, get CT scans right away, so they don't really pursue a VQ scan. And CT scan is excellent in diagnosing acute PE, but CT scans are not still. They're getting better all the time, but they're not 100% uh, sensitive and accurate for diagnosing chronic pulmonary embolism. They look completely different. They're different disease, and the findings on the CT scans are completely different. So VQ scan is the first test. And of course, once you've established the diagnosis is accurate, then you can follow it up with pulmonary angiogram if uh, is necessary. And echocardiogram, uh, obviously you want to look at the function of the right heart, you want to look at the tricuspid valve. And depending on the patient's uh, condition and risk factors, you may pursue other cardiac workup, um, including, let's say, coronary angiogram. If the patients are over 50 years of age or have risk factors, of course you would pursue with other cardiac workup in your evaluation to see if the patient is a surgical candidate. Great. Thank you. And and I know that coronary artery bypassing as well as tricuspid valve repairs are a common concomitant portion of the procedure. But let's move into just uh, some of the basic uh, surgical principles and techniques of the PTE surgery itself. Can you uh, go into that? Sure, absolutely. Um, just let me point out that, of course, if you have coronary disease, you're going to uh, take care of that. But the tricuspid regurgitation is... Um, not necessarily treated with a, with a repair routinely. Uh, most of these patients, they have significant RV enlargement as a result of the strain on the RV, and you have moderate to severe tricuspid regurgitation in these patients. That will actually resolve once you've done an endarterectomy and once RV remodels. It actually um, uh, surprisingly happens almost immediately and certainly by the time the patient leaves the hospital. So if the pressures have come back to a normal level, the tricuspid regurgitation will go away. And I get asked this question all the time. How do you determine if you should you know, uh, intervene on tricuspid regurgitation? And generally, we leave the tricuspid valve alone unless there is a um, leaflet anomaly that you, you've uh, picked up on the uh, transesophageal echo, or the annulus is severely enlarged, let's say over you know, five centimeters or so, um, that you don't think the remodeling is going to help you. 
um, and you have severe tricuspid regurgitation. But short of those factors, and if you have a lot of chronic thromboembolic disease that you remove, you can leave the tricuspid valve alone and it will remodel. Now, let's talk about surgery uh, itself. It's, um, the, the operation is pretty much standard like any other uh, cardiac surgery. Uh, it's done through a median stenotomy, um, mainly uh, because you want to access uh, both uh, lungs. You use a cardiopulmonary bypass machine. Uh, to cool the patient down, and um, circulatory arrest is is a must with this operation, and I go that into uh, detail in, in in a second. And then the other principle of the operation is really identifying the correct plane and doing a full endarterectomy. This takes a lot of experience. Um, you know, doing synonymy, cardiopulmonary bypass, and circulatory arrest, you know, of course, any cardiac surgeon or any, any uh, new cardiac surgeon can do. But identifying the correct plane of endarterectomy and doing a full endarterectomy in the pulmonary vascular, uh, vasculature does take some experience. And, and I don't recommend people just start doing it uh, without actually, you know, having spent some time at an experience center um, uh, to really uh, see how the operation is done. But those are the principles, the four principles, median synotomy, cardiopulmonary bypass, circulatory arrest, and the correct plane. So once we go on bypass, we start to cool generally to about 18 to 20 degrees Celsius, and we wait until the patient is uh, completely cold. And then when we get to that point, we're ready to actually do the endarterectomy. Uh, we use the standard uh, cardioplegia, cross-clamp cardioplegia, and you know, it depends on the center and what the surgeon's preference is. That doesn't really make a whole lot of difference, but as long as you have the heart, you know, fully protected. And then you, we typically start on the right side. The surgeon stands on the left, um, and we start on the right lung. Uh, we access the pulmonary artery between aorta and suprea vena cava. Um, we use a, a modified cerebellar retractor to just uh, open up that space. And then you do your arteriotomy, look inside the vessel, and start some of the endarterectomy. These patients typically have a lot of collateral circulation from bronchial, aortic, and intercostal co collaterals. So they have a lot of back bleeding. And you will not be able to see in the distal vessels uh, unless you have a complete circulatory arrest. Even a low flow state is not going to be adequate. You could do some endarterectomy, but you can't do a nice complete endarterectomy without uh, circulatory arrest. So when you're ready, you go on circulatory arrest, you complete the endarterectomy. Average time is about you know 17, 18 minutes, uh, which is perfectly fine. But in order for us to be really in a, in a safe uh, zone, we limit it to about 20, 25 minutes at a time. And if I feel like in a particular patient I need more than that, then you just restart the circulation for 10, 15 minutes, stop it again, complete endarterectomy on the right. Once the right is done, you restart the circulation, close the artery, go to the left. You do exact same thing on the left side. And once the left side is done, you start to rewarm the patient. Now, by this time, you've switched to the right side of the patient uh, doing the left side endarterectomy. 
And if you need to do any additional procedures like coronary bypass surgery or closure of a PFO or ASD, which is not uncommon, and or tricuspid or any any other um, uh, procedure that you need to do, you're now on the right side of the patient, which is uh, for most surgeons the operative side, and you can you can complete the procedure during rewarming, and once patient's temperature is adequately rewarmed, you're ready to come off cardiopulmonary bypass, and surprisingly, they require very little inotropic support. These patients um, um, have uh, very good uh, cardiac function postoperatively, and they go through a uh, autodiuresis essentially after circuitary arrest. So postoperatively, uh, they have typically they have very good cardiac function, and they also have very good urine output. And uh, the rest of the procedure is, is similar to any other cardiac procedure. You essentially close and come off bypass and close in the standard fashion. Great, thank you. And one of the not so uncommon things that happens coming off cardiopulmonary bypass is uh, airway bleeding. Can you tell us how you work in conjunction with the anesthesiologist to, to, to manage that situation? Yeah, actually, it's um, airway bleeding is uh, um, uh, uncommon. It's not that common. Um, I, would, I would put the incidence in certainly less than 10%, uh, probably in the range of maybe you know 2 to 5%. Uh, depends on the patient you're doing, um, and if you're doing a very sick patient with very distal clots, what we would consider uh, level four clots, which is essentially subsegmental disease only. Uh, when we classify the disease, uh, we classify them as a surgical classification at the time of operation, and we classify them based on where the disease is. So if you have disease in the main branches of right and uh, left PA, that's level one. If you have it in the low bar, that's level two. If you're starting at the segmental branch, meaning little clots, that's level three. Uh, Subsegmental branch is level four. Um, and uh, uh, level zero, of course, is when you don't have any disease. You operate on somebody who may have something else, but not chronic thromboembolic disease. So if you're having somebody with um, level four disease with very high pressures, and you're removing these distal clots, um, you are slightly at a higher risk of for potential hemoptysis postoperatively. Um, and the management is actually quite challenging. You need um, uh, a, a, an experienced anesthesiologist and surgeon to deal with this because it could be a fatal com uh, complication uh, as you're trying to come off bypass and the patient now has hemoptysis. A lot of times, if it's... Uh, um, small enough, it's, it's a degree of hemoptysis is small enough, you just need to manage uh, the hemoptysis either by endoblocker or just by increased PEEP or frequent suctioning until you come off bypass and reverse the anticoagulation. And once you give protamine, actually that stops it. And um, you don't need any more intervention more than that. If it's significant enough that you can't even come off bypass with these things that I mentioned, then um, if the patient can tolerate it, you block off one lung completely with an endoblocker. If they can, if the anesthesiologist can block off the lobe, the particular lobe that the blood is coming from, it'd be even better. But most of the time they can't. And with the pressure of blood, the balloon sort of moves proximally and they end up occluding almost an entire lung. And if you're able to do that, and patient can come off cardiopulmonary bypass, then you, you come off, give protamine, 
and then wait. And over the next several hours, uh, overnight, you gradually, uh, once in a while, you deflate the balloon to see if there's still active bleeding. And a lot of times that, that uh, goes away. Um, the d downside of that approach is, of course, uh, these patients are sick, they, have, they just had surgery, and a lot of them don't tolerate one lung ventilation overnight. And also, you know, potentially you have a lot of clot that's just sitting in the airway uh, over the course of, you know, next 12, uh, 16, 24 hours. And in those situations, then uh, your only other approach is really either veno-veno or veno-arterial ECMO um, until the bleeding has subsided. So you could put the patient on veno-veno or veno-arterial um, um, ECMO, completely reverse the anticoagulation, and see if that bleeding is, is um, uh, you know, under control over the next 24, 48 hours, um, and then eventually take the patient off ECMO. But it, it's a very serious complication. Okay. And to continue on the team approach, uh, theme of this. Can you tell us about some of the post-operative management strategies you do in conjunction with the pulmonologists in the ICU? Sure, sure. This, is a, this is a complete you know, team approach at its best. So uh, we manage these patients with our pulmonary and our direct-to-me team with, uh, who are pulmonologists with specialty just in CTEF. And um, the most, perhaps the most common complication um, after this operation is reperfusion pulmonary edema, reperfusion injury, reperfusion swelling. Um, uh, it's got many different names. And what that is, is essentially a lot of times these patients have lost circulation to one portion of their lungs for, for many years. And now you open up the um, uh, vessels and you have significant degree of blood flow going through the vessels, and the lung becomes hyperemic, and essentially you get uh, pulmonary edema. Unfortunately, because these vessels have just been endarterectomized, you get a steel phenomena. So most of the flow, if you were able to do a VQ scan right away, and, and we used to do this many, many years ago uh, with a bedside VQ scan right after surgery, and what you would see is that the VQ scan will be completely reverse of the one you had pre-op. The blood now is going through areas that you just endarterectomized and were completely occluded. So you have a situation now where you're getting all your blood going to uh, being you know, stolen into these endarterectomized areas where you can't deliver oxygen because you have pulmonary edema. So the patient has a reverse of their situation where they have a lot of blood flow, but now they can't deliver oxygen. And that requires um, staying on the ventilator at perhaps higher PEEP, higher FIA2 requirements. And of course, we rely on our pulmonary colleagues managing the vent and, and uh, uh, waiting. Essentially, you just have to wait for this pulmonary edema to subside. Of course, diuresis helps. Keeping the hematocrit a little on the higher side helps. Um, and, and then patients, you just wait until the uh, edema goes away enough that they can oxygenate uh, on their own. Besides this, and the potential hemoptysis that we just described, all the other potential um, complications that you may see after this operation are typical with any other heart surgery. And management will be very similar.
Okay, thank you. And can you tell us about how patients uh, are followed in the long term and how they do in the long term after PT? Yeah, so um, long term they do very well. There are many studies now and unfortunately we don't have um, long-term studies in the U.S. because as you know these patients come from all over the country and we, a lot of them get lost to follow up. But uh, fortunately the good news is that we just started a U.S. registry um, about a year and a half, maybe, yeah, about a year and a half ago, and we have a lot of patients in the registry now. And this will allow us to follow these patients, both uh, groups of patients who have had surgery and the ones who, one reason or another, were not surgical candidates and didn't have surgery. Uh, so we will have a much better um, answer to your question in a few years for the U.S., but we already know from European registries that have been going on for some time that the law and and uh, especially in UK uh, with the national health system where they keep track of all these patients that the long term survival is actually very good. It's comparable to um, almost general population. Um, the degree of right heart recovery. Um, correlates directly with the degree of um, uh, thromboembolic disease that's been removed. So if you have had um, a significant amount of uh, clot burden that you have removed, the RV is going to get back to normal, the pulmonary pressures are going to get back to normal, and um, the outlook and long-term uh, prognosis for that patient is generally very good. The Downside for these patients, of course, is that they unfortunately have to say a long-term long anticoagulation. And uh, one thing that I would like to, again, point out for uh, our listeners is that uh, uh, some of the newer anticoagulation, the NOACs that we have now, uh, are very convenient, but none of them have been proven in this disease. And what's proven and effective is uh, Coumadin, with the INR goal of at least about you know three or so, three to three point five, um, and we've noticed that when patients are on some of the NOACs, they don't necessarily get adequate anticoagulation. Okay, well, thank you, Dr. Madani, for speaking with us. We very much appreciate it. My pleasure. You're welcome. Thanks so much.